morning. As we turn to give our attention to God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with joy-filled reverence and sober humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin prepares our hearts and minds to do that. Let's read it together. Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Romans chapter 15, verses 7 through 13. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 977. Again, the text is Romans 15, verses 7 through 13, found on page 977 of the Pew Bibles. Hear now the word of God. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, what a um, beautiful passage we have here. We pray that you would draw near, that you would move us, that you would uh, search our hearts, that you would convict us, that you would comfort us, that you would equip us, Father, that you would instruct us through your word, that we might can be conformed to Christ's likeness, that we might live lives of blessing, that we might be more part of the solution and less part of the problem. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen. How do you know when God's kingdom has really come? How do you know when, when, when you, you actually encounter the spirit at work? If you're wondering that, those of you who maybe, you know, are just thinking about Christianity, you're not really sure if Christianity is true or not, maybe you're a young person, or maybe wherever you may be, you're not really sure, like, when do I know that I've bumped up against the real thing? That this right here, in, 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 in concrete form, something that I can grab a hold of, something that I could take my phone, I could take a video of it. How would I know that I'm actually seeing God at work? Have you ever wondered that? Because sometimes Christianity can just seem so, I mean, what, what is it really? What's real? What, 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 what actually is the, the, the thing that makes this thing have life, have meaning, have value? What is it that is real about Christianity? How do you, let me say it again, how do you know God's kingdom has come here and now in this place? What does it look like? 
I think if you were to ask the Apostle Paul that question, he would have a very immediate, simple answer. Are you ready? It's when former enemies are sitting down enjoying a meal together. It's when Jew and Gentile It's when Republican and Democrat, <laughs> right? It's when former spouses who are at odds are able, or, or you know, spouses who are odds are able to sit down and enjoy a meal together. It's when siblings who have long been isolated and separated are able to actually sit down and work out their differences. It's when different classes, different ethnicities are able to join as one and overcome their differences. Think about that beautiful picture of a meal. We all love to, to eat, right? We love to sit down and have food. In fact, in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate as the climax of our service. A meal. A meal that Jesus himself institutes. A meal that is for all the wayward and the wicked. All the unworthy. A meal that speaks of a blood that is greater than the blood of kin. It is the blood of the crucified one. A blood that unites us, that is to unite us, that when it has an impact, when it really makes a difference, it makes us abandon the blood of kin for the sake of the blood of Christ. So there's a, there's a concreteness. There's a reality for Paul. And it's right here, in fact, the, verse, the, the verses that, that Lydia read for us are arguably the climax of the entire book of Romans. And we've been making our journey from Romans 12 through Romans 15 in this series called Remembering the Body, speaking not only of remembering the body of Christ, but putting the, the various members of the body back together. We think of the last two years and all that we've been through. Oh my goodness, right? Could we overstate the, the polarization the atomization, the isolation, the alienation that has taken place over the last two years. From the pandemic, right, to the presidential election, to protests. I mean, it's just amazing the, 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 the ways that our culture, the ways that our world today just seems so good at just pulling us all apart. And Paul here in Romans 12 through 15 has been giving us specific instructions uh, urging us on how we can be the people of God, the family of God. And he's writing to, to this Roman, this, these Roman Christians whom he's never met and who are living in these, uh, or are, are a tiny fraction of the, of, the, of the great city of Rome, who are marginalized, who are afflicted, and who, listen to this, this is so important, who face division with their, within their own church within the various church houses that that would have that would have been scattered throughout uh, the city of Rome and Paul gives this absolutely central exhortation here in chapter 15 verse 7 let me read it it says accept one another then just as Christ accepted you and this exhortation again is a climax i think of the entire book but it's especially a climax to this section of chapters 14 into, into chapter 15. 
because Paul here has been talking about uh, the idea of welcoming, of accepting, of embracing, of seeking out those in the congregation, those in the church houses who are from different backgrounds, who have different perspectives on various, uh, various issues that are of lesser consequence, what we may call disputable matters. And he frames them in two words. Look at, look at the beginning of chapter 14. It says, except the one whose faith is weak. You said he uses that language of weakness and strength. In the very beginning of chapter 15, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And he speaks of how there are various issues within the Roman church, issues of diet, what you can and can't eat, Issues of, of days of the week and various dates, holy days, of the part, parts of the Jewish calendar most likely. And these differences, which may seem kind of strange to us, may seem somewhat um, just kind of unnecessary, even kind of uh, silly, to them were actually had real consequence. Just as 50 years from now, people might look back and go, really, they argued over masks, right? They argued over vaccinations. Because I tell you right now, there are churches out there that have, have split. Churches that have, have, have are in, in tremendous decline because of the various issues of the past year, presidential election. They let an election split their church. Yeah. They let masks split their church. They let vaccinations split their church. Because to them, in the moment, it was so important. It was everything. It was all that mattered. And Paul is saying, listen, at the very heart of the gospel, you can see the kingdoms coming when people of different perspectives unite around the blood of Christ and see that as more important, more central, the key ingredient to true community and human flourishing. You see that? And so this exhortation to welcome one another just as Christ welcomed you to accept one another just as Christ accept, accepted you is this, this key imperative, this key command that leads to the manifestation, the realization, the actualization of the kingdom of God. You see that? It's just so incredibly important. In the very beginning of 15, let's just do a little bit of review. At the very beginning of chapter 15, Paul speaks of this, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And he gives the example of Christ. And in doing so, he quotes the Old Testament. This is so, this is so important. He, each of us, he said, should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. Now, neighbor here isn't speaking immediately of your neighbor, like in your neighborhood. Here it's speaking of the, those who are sitting to your left and right, in front and behind you in the pew. He's speaking of the internal dynamics, that I am here to please not myself, but how can I please Walt? How can I please Hal? How can I care for Brad over here or Don? How can I please them, not myself? And that notion of neighbor is the idea that what unites us here is simply one thing. Or what, what, what gives me an agenda to whom I should serve is simply one thing. It's not their views. It's not their background. It's simply what? Their proximity. That's what a neighbor is. Is there someone to the right of you, to the left of you, in front of you, behind you? They're the one you're to please. This geographical 
proximity right here, right now. I don't care who you voted for. I don't care what you think about masks. I don't care what you think about vaccinations. I don't care what you think about, name the various issues, sacraments. I don't care what you think about where you send your kids to school. And we can talk about these things. They're not irrelevant. We in previous, in previous sermons, I addressed this. What does it look like to do that, to talk about these various things and to, to discuss and define them within the right framework? But Paul is saying to be strong. The evidence that you are mature is that you want to please whoever is around you. It's not that you have the right view. Look at me. I have the right views. Right? I have the truth. I know how to think about issue A, hot button B, whatever it is. The definition of maturity is that you see someone over there and say, you know what? I wonder how they're hurting. I wonder what, what's keeping them up at night. I wonder what their struggles are. And how, how can I help? How can I serve them? How can I please them? And where do we get the motivation to do that? This is so important. Where does, where is, where is the, where is the, what's the glue? And what is the, the fuel that actually enables the strong to bear with the weak and to please the weak and to love them? He tells us in verse Verse 3, 2 and 3. He says, for, verse 3, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. He quotes Psalm 69. And then he says something that's so important. Where does the glue, where does the fuel for community come from? Where does the glue come from for, for the strong loving the weak and the weak returning love to the strong? Verse 4, for everything that was written in the past, he's speaking of scripture, the Old Testament, was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have what? Hope. Because I don't know about you, it's so easy to look at other people, to look at yourself in the mirror and what? Lose hope. It's just so discouraging. Man, as a, as a leadership, we often we just be, man, how do we get these people to love each other? How do we get them to care for each other? How do we get them to really serve and long and pray for each other, to participate? In the lives of one another, come alongside and bear the burdens of others. How do we do that? How do we get spouses to love one another? How do we get siblings to care for each other? How do we get rich and poor, high class, low class? How do we get the various ethnicities, the backgrounds, the various political parties? How do we get these persons? It would take a miracle to do that. It would take a miracle, and that's why you know that when those things are happening, it's the kingdom of God. And how we actually have a fuel to do that, Paul says, is by looking to the scriptures. I love that again. For, for everything was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance, the endurance taught in the scriptures, and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Let me give you an illustration. So I've been reading through the Old Testament right now, and I was reading through the book of Ruth. Turn, turn to the left, turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Ruth. It's a beautiful little book. If you're following along in your pew Bible, we'll go ahead and go to um, chapter two, two, page 225. Such a beautiful story here. I love this story. In some ways, a very simple story, but very profound. Look in chapter 2, verse 5. I'll, without giving the background, I'm going to jump right in. I'll explain as I go along here. 
Again, I'm sorry, this is page 226, Ruth chapter, chapter 2. I'll start in verse 5. This is so awesome. Boaz is a, is a, uh, is a Jew. He's an Israelite. He's a, a landowner. He is going out to see the harvest and those who are harvesting him. And in verse 5, he says, we read, Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who is that young woman? Who does that young woman belong to? In the ancient world, there were no singles. You didn't have individuals. You belonged to households. And a woman especially belonged in a sense she was, she was part of either married to a man or she was a, a, someone's daughter. She was part of a household. So he asked, to whom does that woman belong? He's, he's asking a question of concern. Verse 6, the overseer replied, she, that is Ruth, she is a Moabite. Now understand, the Moabites were the arch enemy of the people of God, of the Israelites. She is not just an outsider. She's not just a foreigner. She is a pariah. She is from the enemy. What's she doing here? She is a Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. Naomi was a, a, is a Jew, so an Israelite. And her husband convinced her to leave the, the, the Israel and go live in the land of Moab. And it was a disaster. Her husband died there, as did her sons. And they returned bereft of, of, of husband, bereft of father, with nothing. They came back to Israel. And he, verse 7, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. This was a very common thing that the poorest of the poor would do. So here she is, humiliated, an outsider, simply trying to make ends meet. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So what does Boaz do? It's so beautiful. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, I'm sorry, what? What did he just call her? My daughter. Moabites, women nowhere, who knows what her background is? Who knows what kind of character she has? My daughter. Family. We're family. You're my daughter. Listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting. And follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you go th are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that just amazing? Doesn't that just suddenly make us rethink how we think about other people? Right? So this is, there's no ethnic relation. There is no family relation. And what is he doing? He's treating her as if she were family. That's the gospel. That's how when you read the Old Testament... It reshapes how we think about community right here and right now, strong and the weak. Because here in Rome, you had Jews, you had Gentiles, you had people from all manner of backgrounds in Rome. And Paul is saying, welcome one another. Embrace one another. Seek out one another. How, who here can you look at and say, you know what, from now on, you're my daughter. I treat you like a mother. Sarah and I have had that all, as we traveled all throughout just from, from various places, from being in the Air Force, from our time in the Air Force, from the time in school, 
We've gone, we go around, we have people who we refer to. We have someone that we know, we call her our Florida mom. Because she, she's, we met her in Florida, single mom, raising a boy. And we just welcomed her. We accepted her. We embraced her in, embraced her son. And he became like a brother to me. She became like a mother to us. That's the kingdom of God at work. He calls her a daughter, a term of intimacy, without any hint of, of sexual, of romanticism, anything like that. That's how the relationship begins, right? He calls her a daughter and he thinks, of, what does she need? She needs security. I told the men not to lay a hand on you. She might need, she's going to get thirsty. Here, go drink from the water. He's, he's thinking about how he can help her. And look at verse 10. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such what? Favor. That's the word there is the Hebrew or the Greek word charis. It means grace. Why have I found such grace in your eyes? That's exactly the definition of grace. Grace is the offering, listen to this, it's the offering of concern, it's the offering of benefit, it's the offering of love outside of normal channels. Does that make sense? Normal channels would be, who are you supposed to love? Your spouse. Who are you supposed to love? Your siblings. Your family. In fact, St. Louis excels at loving family. In fact, as you can see articles various times, various times in the St. In the St. Louis paper about just how St. Louis is one of the un, most unfriendly cities. You know why? Because it's all about family. It's all about the blood of kin. And that's how the ancient world worked. I mean, that's how the world works. Family is number one. And that is exactly the opposite of how the people of God, how the family of God is supposed to work. That's what makes it so just unbelievably transformational, so unbelievably countercultural, is that this grace, this favor, this concern falls outside of familial circles, outside of biological, ancestral, racial, ethnic lines. And that's what's so crazy about the story of Boaz and Ruth, is that Boaz says, hey, my daughter, how can I treat you as a family member? And so you have this, this exhortation where Paul says, welcome one another, just as Christ welcomed you. Those who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And he appeals to the story of Scripture where again and again throughout the Old Testament, you have these stories that are so empowering, so refocusing. And think about it, Haboaz is this guy who is living in a time when Israel is under judgment. Things are not going well in the people of God. Well, they're never going well, are they? The church is always being, there's always struggling, it's always militant, there's always opposition, there's always compromise, there's always uh, believers who are believers in name only, there are always weak leaders, and yet Boaz says, I am going to be faithful to the Lord, and I'm going to welcome those as God has welcomed me. So it gives you an example of how the Old Testament, how reading your Bible every day moves us to commune with one another, to welcome one another. It's an example from the Old Testament. It gives us hope. Do you see that? Hope to invest in people outside of our circles. All right, so let's turn back to Romans. Let's go outside, go back to Romans here, Romans 5, to 15 here. Let me jump me brother real quick. 
And let's follow Paul's train of thought here in this section. He exhorts us, first and foremost, to welcome one another. Verse 7, the NIV is accept one another. Accept is a little bit too weak to me. Accept just means like, okay, I'll accept you as you are. Here that's more proactive, it's more assertive, it's seek out. It's welcome, proactively welcome. Let them know, my daughter. Let them know that they are family. Accept one another then as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Don't minimize that last part. It's so important. That when we love one another, when we welcome one another, it will lead to immediate worship of the Lord. What did Jesus say on the night of his betrayal when he was washing his disciples' feet? Right? If by your love for one another, the world will know that the Father has sent me. There's this immediate sense, who are these people who love one another? Who, who does that? Why are they reaching out? Why are they crossing? Why are they reaching out of their own familial, in their own familial context? Why are they reaching across ethnic lines? Why are they loving people of different political parties? What are they doing? It's just strange. And it brings glory. Well, who, who is it that they worship? Who is this Jesus? It raises questions. It raises a sense of celebration and worship. You know, Paul is writing here to, to Roman Christians. And he's doing so. This is so important. He's doing so at a time when Christianity is like 0.0000001% of the Roman world. I mean, these are these these Roman house churches, they're nothing to write home about. It's like this. This would be a large Roman church house. Isn't that amazing? They're just inconsequential. And you wonder, when did Christianity actually kind of appear? And how did it appear? How did it actually explode and manifest itself? Well, listen to this. By the end of the second century, that's by 200 AD, it's estimated that Christians, listen to this, were a meager 100,000-ish in number. So think of that. So Paul's writing in the 50s AD, 150 years later, there's still maybe 100,000 people in America. I mean, I'm sorry, in, in, the, Roman, in, the, in the Roman world, okay? They, they make little, throughout, if you look at the history, the historical record that we have, they make little or no appearance up to about the, the third century, okay? Now listen to this. Between 200 and 300 AD, suddenly Christianity expands. In fact, it just sort of explodes on the scene. It does so rather rapidly. And it's evidenced by the, the, the impressive spread of the names that are unmistakably Christian. That's how we know. Suddenly names like Mark and Peter and John start appearing. Luke, people start naming their kids after the apostles, after the, 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 the early Christians. And so we begin to see, like, wow, suddenly Christianity is spreading because these names, where these names start, people's names start coming up. And as, and as one historian of the period mentions here, I love this, he states, the unavoidable conclusion is that the third century witnessed the explosive transformation of Christianity into a mass phenomenon. You wonder, well, what happened? What caused that transformation? Now, there's a number of factors, okay? But one of the most important factors that historians conclude was a plague, a pandemic, that ravaged the empire from the 240s, all the through the 240s to the end of the following decade, almost 20 years, okay? A plague for whom our primary source is a guy named Cyprian. 
Cyprian was a bishop of, Carth of Carthage. In fact, he, was, uh, he, was, he, he became a Christian, arose quickly actually to leadership, and actually was martyred about 12, 13 years later. And listen to this. Listen to what the historian says, okay, about Cyprian and about the plague of Cyprian, as it's called. The mass mortality, the death, the, the, amount of, the incredible amount of death from the plague painfully showed the inefficacy of the Roman gods. Does that make sense? Everyone's dying, including the Roman gods, the Roman, the Roman, the, 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 those to whom the Romans looked for, to the experts, to the influencers. It showed them as being inefficacious, as being out, not in control. And it put on exhibit the virtues of the Christian faith. Now, this, again, this, not, this guy's not a Christian. He's writing as an historian. He says, Christianity's sharpest advantage. Are you listening? Its greatest advantage was its inexhaustible ability to forge kinship-like networks among perfect strangers. What is a kinship-like network among perfect, among perfect strangers called? A church. <laughs> right? You got it? I love that. It's, it's greatest. Its sharpest advantage was, to, was its inexhaustible ability to forge kinship-like networks among perfect strangers based on an ethic of sacrificial love. The church boasted of being a new ethnos. What does ethnos sound like? It's a Greek word for a people, an ethnicity. Not an ethnicity on ancestral lines or ancestral blood or biological blood, but what? On the blood of Christ. It boasted of being a new ethnos, a new nation, with all the implications of a shared heritage a mutual, and mutual obligation. Christian ethics turned the chaos of pestilence into a mission field. The vivid promise of resurrection encouraged the faithful against the fear of death. Cyprian, in the heat of persecution and plague, pleaded with his congregation to love the enemy. The compassion was conspicuous and consequential. Once the fire of crisis was burned out, its ashes left behind a fertile field of Christian expansion. Isn't that amazing? How did the church go from being 100,000 in 200 AD to being a force to be reckoned with in 300 AD? A pandemic. A pandemic in which you had Christians who believed that their central call in life was to welcome one another just as Christ had welcomed them. Isn't that beautiful? It's to say, this is, here's my home. This home is now your home. Here's my family. You're now part of my family. Welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you, says Paul. And he says, this is so beautiful. It continues here in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews. This is Paul saying again. He appoints the example of Christ and said, you know what? When Christ came to this world, he became a servant of the Jews, of a people who in his time utterly rejected him, utterly shamed him, misunderstood him, rejected him. I tell you that Christ became a servant of the Jews. Why? 
This is so beautiful. On behalf of God's truth. I love that. And then a better translation might be, on behalf of God's trustworthiness. So that, and the trustworthiness means, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. So what are those promises? So Paul, listen, don't, don't lose sight of what Paul's saying here. He says, Paul became a servant of God's people, a very wicked, a very wayward, a very recalcitrant, rebellious people. He became their servant and welcomed them his entire life, even as they rejected him. Why? So that, so that God's faithfulness, his promises to the patriarchs would be fulfilled. What promises are those? Turn to the left. This is, so, this, is, this is so unbelievable to me. Turn to back to the very first book of the Bible, to Genesis. The very first patriarch was whom? It was Abraham, right? And what, is, what, are the, what are the promises that God make to Abraham? Look in chapter 12. This is page 9, chapter 12 of Genesis. At the very beginning of, of, of chapter 12, Paul, oh, God makes promises to, to, to Abraham, or to his, his, his original name is Abram. In verse 2, he begins by saying and making these promises. And look in verse 3. He says, I will, this is at the top of page 10. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Listen to this. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is to say, all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Turn to the right. So there's a promise saying, listen, through you, I'm going to bring blessing to the Gentiles. You exist for the sake of the Gentiles, for a people who have no relation, no family connection, nothing, the outsiders. Turn to the right to the few pages, to chapter 18, verse 18. It's on page 14. Here the angels are speaking about Abraham, and they say this, chapter 18, verse 18, page 14. Abraham will surely become a great uh, and powerful nation, and what? All nations on earth will be blessed through him. Again, do you see where this is going? That God's people from day one, from the patriarchs on, the promise was that through you, I will bless all these outsiders. Their mission in life was not about simply hoarding, becoming isolated themselves, and let's be this great ethnic people by ourselves, to be our family, take care of our kids, make sure they're so well educated. Make sure they go to the best the best us have the best schools and make sure that they are in the best teams because it's all about family. It's all about taking care of your own. It's all about pouring money, time, energy into your own kids. Listen, America does two things really well. Either just radically ignore their kids or just absolutely idolize them. And that, that has infected the church so deeply. Some of you worship your children. You do. It's well intended. I get it. You want the best for them. And it's not the best. When you focus on your children and isolate them from the church, you're cutting them off from the very family of God. Recently I had a conversation with a woman who, uh, she's, uh, I want to say late 40s, early 50s, and uh, she's a pastor's wife. Um, wonderful woman. Uh, I was talking with her, and she she had gone to visit her 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 dad, um, and uh, her dad has three children. She's one of three, 
And she said, she said, you know, my dad, this conversation with my dad, and she, my dad said, I wonder why you're the only one of my three kids that goes to church now. Because I find that so disappointing. I wish all my kids went to church. I wish they were, had the benefits of, of, of you know, of, of a church, of a local community of faith. And they began to talk, and, and uh, they talked about church attendance when they were young, when, when the kids were young. And they agreed, and then the, the, the father conceded and, and had to admit that they went to church only when there was nothing else going on. So if there's a game, ah, game's better. If there's family in town, ah, it's family. And you don't have to say anything. What does that communicate to your children when you go to church when there's nothing else going on? And it just makes it so obvious. It's like, well, this is not a priority. This is, that really doesn't matter to you. And so the notion of putting family first is actually a way of destroying your family. And when you make the people of God first, your family will flourish. I promise you it will. It will flourish. Welcome, Paul. Paul says, welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you. And so, so we see here, it's so beautiful. Christ becomes a servant to those who will reject him. Why? For the sake of the promises. Promises that are about whom? You and me, the Gentiles. About outsiders. That through Christ, through his obedience, through his rejection by his own people, he will open the door to the nations, the people like you and me. So that in the 21st century, here we are worshiping God on a Sunday morning. Isn't it incredible? I mean, it really is remarkable how Jesus' obedience brings, opens the door to the nations so that we might know his mercy and celebrate him. We're almost done. Let me just turn back to, to the chapter 15 of Romans, page 977. And Paul just simply then goes on to quote from, from all the, they're, they're, in, the, in, the, in the Jewish mind, there were three sections of scripture. There were the, the Pentateuch, there was the law, there was, the, there was the, the, the prophets, and there were the writings. And Paul quotes from all three of those sections. He quotes from the Psalms, which are in the writings. He quotes from Deuteronomy, which is in the Pentateuch. And then last, he quotes from Isaiah, which is one of the prophets, to show without question that, that, that Jesus was, was working, his life goal was to fulfill the promises found throughout the scripture. And what are these promises all about? It's about the inclusion of the outsider. It's about the Gentiles coming out, being welcomed in and, and, and worshiping God alongside of Israel. And we see that, in, in, again, in verses uh, 9 through 12. I'm just going to read verse 12. And it says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, that is, that is David, a descendant of David, will spring up. You will rise up, one who will rise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. Isn't that beautiful? It's such a beautiful thing. And then Paul closes with prayer. I love this. This is so important. Paul realizes there's no way for us to welcome one another in our own, in our own power. I so appreciated, um, I so appreciated uh, the prayer. I remember one of you, I think it might have been Kathy, prayed earlier saying, forgive me for relying on my own strength. And Paul realizes this, well, this call to welcome one another is so countercultural. It's so counterintuitive. It will never happen in our own strength. And so he closes the section with prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. So that, you may, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just such a beautiful thing. 
See, this, this is the message. It's a message of profound hope that God comes to this world in the form of Christ and he welcomes those who reject him. And in so doing, he creates a community like no other. Good shepherd. How are we doing? Are we welcoming one another? Are we seeking each other out? I mean, do you know? Do you know? Do you know the struggles, the sorrows of the people to your right and left? Or do you do? I mean, listen, don't get me wrong. I'm going to come down. I have, I, we've had visitors come to the church. And they have told me one of the most the things that a pastor probably wants to hear most. You know what that is? Your congregation is so incredibly welcoming. I want you to know that. It's so encouraging. When we have people they visit and they come to our house and they say, wow, we want you to know. We just, your people in your congregation, people came up to us, they asked us, they talked, so thank you. There is that welcome. But that is, that is, that is good. It's beautiful for a Sunday morning. But what about a Sunday lunch? What about Friday night? What about an evening and say, hey, come to my house? Or, hey, let's go out to dinner together. Or let's go to lunch together. And beginning to walk with them. Or, hey, are you in a small group? You should consider coming to our small group. And welcoming them into not just uh, welcoming into the sanctuary, but welcoming them into your life. Welcoming them into your home. Welcoming, welcoming them into your heart. More than any act of political legislation, more than whoever is in power in the White House, what will change the world in the midst of a pandemic, just like the plague of Cyprian, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates are dying of loneliness. They are just like Ruth, alone, just trying to survive feeling like an outsider. And if you want to taste and see the concrete reality of the kingdom of God, to say, ah, there it is, to get it on your video, to get it on your camera, to take a picture of it, a video of it, all we need to do is welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed us. Let's pray.